Chapter One of the Rome Express. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rome Express by Arthur Griffiths. Chapter One. The Rome Express, the Direttissimo, or most direct, was approaching Paris one morning in March when it became known to the occupants of the sleeping car that there was something amiss, very much amiss, in the car. The train was travelling the last stage, between La Roche and Paris, a run of hundred miles, without a stop. It had halted at La Roche for early breakfast, and many, if not all the passengers, had turned out. Of those in the sleeping car, seven in number, six had been seen in the restaurant or about the platform. The seventh, a lady, had not stirred. All had re-entered their berths to sleep or doze when the train went on, but several were on the move as it neared Paris, taking their turn at the lavatory, calling for water, towels, making the usual stir of preparation as the end of a journey was at hand. There were many calls for the porter, yet no porter appeared. At last the attendant was found, lazy villain, asleep, snoring loudly, stertorously, in his little bank at the end of the car. He was roused with difficulty, and set about his work in a dull, unwilling, lethargic way, which promised badly for his tips from those he was supposed to serve. By degrees all the passengers got dressed, all but two the lady nine and ten, who had made no sign as yet, and the man who occupied alone a double berth next her, numbered seven and eight. As it was the porter's duty to call every one, and as he was anxious, like the rest of his class, to get rid of his travellers as soon as possible after arrival, he rapped at each of the two closed doors behind which people presumably still slept. The lady cried, "'All right!' but there was no answer from number seven and eight. Again and again the porter knocked and called loudly. Still meeting with no response, he opened the door of the compartment and went in. It was now broad daylight. No blind was down, indeed. The one narrow window was open wide, and the whole of the interior of the compartment was plainly visible, all and everything in it. The occupant lay on his bed motionless. Sound asleep? No, not merely asleep. The twisted and natural lie of the limbs, the contorted legs, the one arm drooping listlessly but stiffly over the side of the berth, told of a deeper, more eternal sleep. The man was dead. Dead, and not from natural causes. One glance at the blood-stained bedclothes, one look at the gaping wound in the breast, at the battered, mangled face, told the terrible story. It was murder. Murder most foul. The victim had been stabbed to the heart. With a wild, affrighted cry, the porter rushed out of the compartment, and to the eager questioning of all who crowded round him, he could only mutter in confused and trembling accents, There, there, in there. Thus the fact of the murder became known to everyone 
by personal inspection, for every one, even the lady had appeared for just a moment, had looked in where the body lay. The compartment was filled for some ten minutes or more by an excited, gesticulating, polyglot mob of half a dozen, all talking at once in French, English, and Italian. The first attempt to restore order was made by a tall man, middle-aged, but erect in his bearing, with bright eyes and alert manner, who took the porter aside and said sharply, in good French, but with a strong English accent, "'Here, it's your business to do something. No one has any right to be in that compartment now. There may be reasons, traces, things to remove. Never mind what, but get them all out.' Be sharp about it, and lock the door. Remember you will be held responsible to justice. The porter shuddered. So did many of the passengers who had overheard the Englishman's last words. Justice. It is not to be trifled with anywhere, least of all in France, where the uncomfortable superstition prevails that everyone who can be reasonably suspected of a crime is held to be guilty of that crime until his innocence is clearly proved. All those six passengers and the porter were now brought within the category of the accused. They were all open to suspicion. They and they alone, for the murdered man had been seen alive at La Roche, and the fell deed must have been done since then, while the train was in transit, that is to say, going at express speed, when no one could leave it except at peril of his life. Just awkward for us said the tall English general, Sir Charles Collingham by name, to his brother, the parson, when he had re-entered their compartment and shut the door. "'I can't see it. In what way?' asked the Reverend Silas Collingham. A typical English cleric, with a rubicon face and square-cut white whiskers, dressed in a suit of black serge and wearing the professional white tie. "'Why, we shall be detained, of course. Arrested, probably. Certainly detained.' Examined, cross-examined, bully-ragged. I know something of the French police and their ways. "'If they stop us, I shall write to the Times,' cried his brother, by profession a man of peace, but with a choleric eye that told of an angry temperament. "'By all means, my dear Silas, when you get the chance. That won't be just yet, for I tell you we're in a tight place, and may expect a good deal of worry.' With that he took out his cigarette-case, and his matchbox, lighted his cigarette, and calmly watched the smoke rising with all the coolness of an old campaigner accustomed to encounter and face the ups and downs of life. "'I only hope to goodness they'll run straight on to Paris,' he added in a fervent tone, not unmixed with apprehension. "'No, by jingo, we're slackening speed.' "'Why shouldn't we? It's right the conductor, or chief of the train, or whatever you call him, should know what has happened.' "'Why, man, can't you see? While the train is travelling express, everyone must stay on board it. If it slows, it is possible to leave it. Who would want to leave it?' "'Oh, I don't know,' said the general, rather testily. "'Anyway, the thing's done now.' The train had pulled up in obedience to the signal of alarm given by someone in the sleeping-car, but by whom it was impossible to say. Not by the porter, for he seemed greatly surprised as the conductor came up to him. "'How did you know?' he asked. "'No, no what? You stopped me.' "'I didn't.' 
Who rang the bell, then? I did not, but I'm glad you've come. There has been a crime. Murder! Good heavens! cried the conductor, jumping up on the car and entering into the situation at once. His business was only to verify the fact and take all necessary precautions. He was a burly, brusque, peremptory person, the despotic, self-important French official, who knew what to do, as he thought, and did it without hesitation or apology. No one must leave the car, he said in a tone not to be misunderstood, neither now nor on arrival at the station. There was a shout of protest and dismay which he quickly cut short. You will have to arrange it with the authorities in Paris. They can alone decide. My duty is plain, to detain you, place you under surveillance, till then. Afterwards we will see. Enough, gentlemen, and madame. He bowed with the instinctive gallantry of his nation to the female figure which now appeared at the door of her compartment. She stood for a moment listening, seemingly greatly agitated, and then, without a word, disappeared, retreating hastily into her own private room, where she shut herself in. Almost immediately, at a signal from the conductor, the train resumed its journey. The distance remaining to be traversed was short, half an hour more, and the Lyon station at Paris was reached where the bulk of the passengers, all indeed but the occupants of the sleeper, descended and passed through the barriers. The latter were again desired to keep their places, while a pose of officials came and mounted guard. Presently they were told to leave the car one by one, but to take nothing with them. All their handbags, rugs, and belongings were to remain in the berth just as they lay. One by one they were marched under escort to a large and bare waiting-room, which had no doubt been prepared for their reception. Here they took their seats and chairs placed in wide intervals apart, and were peremptorily forbidden to hold any communication with each other, by word or gesture. This order was enforced by fierce-looking guard in blue and red uniform, who stood facing them with his arms folded, gnawing his moustache and frowning severely. Last of all, the porter was brought in and treated like the passengers, but more distinctly as a prisoner. He had a guard all to himself, and it seemed as though he was the object of peculiar suspicion. It had no great effect upon him, for while the rest of the party were very plainly sad, and a prey to lively apprehension, the porter sat dull and unmoved, with the stolid, sluggish, unconcerned aspect of a man just roused from sound sleep and relapsing into slumber, who takes little notice of what is passing around. Meanwhile, the sleeping car, with its contents, especially the corpse of the victim, was shunted into a siding, and sentries were placed on it at both ends. Seals had been affixed upon the entrance doors, so that the interior might be kept inviolate until it could be visited and examined by the chef de la sûreté or chief of the detective service. Every one and everything awaited the arrival of this all-important functionary. End of chapter 1